again, welcome to Freedom. Glad to see you here on this Labor Day weekend. And to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to Freedom Online. We're always glad to have you be a part of worship this way. Uh, I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed the music today. It's, it's fun just occasionally to just have a total change of pace, and today has been that. And uh, ever since, t- Tony and I will always communicate at the beginning of the week about what the music is going to be for that week. And when he sent me the lineup for this week, I've been itching for Sunday to get here because... That is a, a wide stretch to cover, and, and we're not done yet. By the time we're done today, Tony will have taken us from the cathedrals to the imperials to Kirk Franklin to the Gaithers. Now, I've been, I've been itching all week to see how a, a southern white man could do Kirk Franklin on Sunday morning. So, uh, well done. Very well done. Uh, good stuff. We are, uh, if you weren't here last Sunday, we are in a new series that's going to last for a couple of months. And it's about the unseen war. Uh, You know, we live in a bit of an unusual time in American history. And I'm not talking about just from a spiritual perspective. Uh, America has fought a lot of wars in the last 250 years. But there has never been a season like the, the past 17 years that the United States has experienced. You know, we have been in a constant state of war since 2001. There's never been a a day since late 2001 that we haven't been at war. We've had troops on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq and different places, and we've just constantly lived at war. There's never been any period in our history that's come anywhere close to this. It's the longest period of war that we've ever faced, and there's no end in sight. I mean, you realize that. We've entered into this thing now where we don't fight against another nation and say, if we can conquer this people, if we can conquer this leader, then there will be peace. We've entered into this different phase where we're fighting an enemy that's very different. We talk about it as the war on terror, and we have a hard time getting our heads around it. I mean, do you remember like in 2001 when we first started hearing about the war on terror and trying to... To understand what that would mean, because, you know, when we've studied wars in history, this group of people, this nation fought this nation, and here's who won, and that's not how we fight anymore. It's become much more confusing and vague, hasn't it? And so we've got troops in countries where we're not trying to defeat that country, we're trying to defeat something that's got more of a vague sense of of evil. There's just there's cruelty and evil and oppression and, and terrorism in the world and we're we're trying to conquer that and it seems like every time we begin to get a handle on it in one place something bad pops up somewhere else and we need to send troops some other place. It's like the, the game that you see in the arcades, you know, the, the bop it game where a head pops up and you knock it down and as soon as you knock it down it pops up somewhere else. Do you not have that sense about what's going on in terms of world events? We're living in a season like that because there's evil somewhere popping up all the time and you can't generate enough tanks and planes and bombs and missiles to overcome evil in in that way. Now, today's not a political message. Don't misunderstand where I'm going with that. I'm not trying to give political commentary on that. I'm just telling you, what you're seeing in the natural is a reflection of a much greater reality that we all live with. It's something that you've lived with since the day that you were born, and that is that you were born into a war. You were born into a conflict, and oh yeah, it boils over to the, to the place of world conflict. International conflict is one of the results of this war that you live with, but it's been there not just since 2001. It's been there in your life since the day that you were born. You're living in the middle of a war. 
and it has three fronts. For every one of us, we, we've experienced this war at three different levels. The scripture talks about it in these three ways. The, the three front fronts that you face in this war is, first of all, with warfare within your own body, within your own mind. The scripture talks about it as being the warfare with your flesh. That is with the, the more base, carnal, worldly nature that you have that loves to do wrong. And that doesn't want to do right. And every one of us have got that. We're going to talk about that a lot today and next Sunday. The second front in this war that we fight is with the world. There is a, a world system that is observable. It's, it's not made up. What we're talking about here isn't an unseen thing. It, it's very real. It's, it's created by the collective will of humans. And it is at cross purposes with the kingdom of God. And it manifests itself in a variety of different ways that are all designed to influence you away from the Lord and godly values and kingdom living. And if we had to just sum up what the the effect of the world system has on us is, it's hard to just put it in one or two sentences, but it's really easy to recognize some of these things. That collectively, the world is telling you that in order to have value, you've got to be attractive Skinny, smart, or wealthy. And if you don't have any of those things, then you don't have much value. Would you not agree with that? That that's a a major part of the world's message? If you're not sure about it, walk into any grocery store or any bookstore and just look at the covers of magazines. Powerful, smart, skinny, uh, more beautiful than than God even makes you. We've got to airbrush what God does to get you to look that good. The world is constantly sending you a message that says you need money to be happy, that you need, that you need intimate relationships to be happy, and that sex is going to make you happy, that possessions are going to make you happy. There is a world system that is working against what God wants to do in our lives. And this world system is manifest in a variety of different ways. I mean, it's not coincidental that... When you open your computer, you have access to every kind of filth imaginable. It doesn't cost you anything. All it takes a few keystrokes to get there. You can go down the most unthinkable pathways in a matter of seconds through any laptop, any phone, any connection to the Internet. The devil didn't create that. That is a a world system that does that. The world system today has created a, a situation where maybe you didn't realize this, but there are more human beings who are slaves today than at any other time in human history. Do you know that? You may think, oh, in 1865, when the Civil War ended, pretty much slavery was abolished. Think again. More slaves today than ever in history. Somewhere between 20 and 40 million humans live in slavery today. Roughly 80% of those are sex slaves. They're, they're forced into prostitution and those kinds of things. And almost all of those are women and children. That has become one of the biggest three money makers in terms of criminal enterprises in the world. Human trafficking. That's a part of the world system. And it is a part of the warfare that we enter into. That Those things have to be broken. Those things have to be overcome. Christians can't just sit back and go, well, I hate it for them. They'll just quit and walk away from it. That is a system that is powerful and is gaining traction. It is growing. 
We can look back in the history books at what happened in the 1850s and 60s and say, boy, that, that was terrible. People should have you know, stood up to that sooner and done something about all that, that terrible slavery. Yes, they should have. But what about Christians in 2018 when there are more slaves in our generation than at any time in history? Where's the church today? We can't just sit back and go, well, what a shame. And don't you think that this is just happening in other places? It's happening right here in America, in Alabama, in Baldwin County, that these things are going on. There is a world system that is working against what God is doing. And it's always seeking to enslave people, to oppress people. And then there's a third realm that we have to deal with in in this war. And that is the supernatural realm it is the the realm of spiritual warfare where we have to deal with the devil and demons who have very personal assignments toward us our families our community our church and this is not just some silly archaic way of thinking and talking about evil this is very real and just because we cannot with our eyes most of the time see this manifestation of evil it is very real. And to not believe in that is to just choose not to believe the Word of God. Because it's so clearly depicted there. I mean, how do you read through the Gospels without just constantly bumping into the fact that every direction that Jesus went, everywhere he turned, he's having to deal with this form of evil. And very few churches today are spending any time teaching what the Word has to say about how to overcome that form of evil and the ways that it manifests itself in our lives. And rest assured, going to counseling or reading self-help books will not break those kinds of strongholds that the enemy will establish in our lives. So every one of us desperately need to learn how to have victory in each of these three fronts that we have to face. And here's the thing. The way that you address each of these is different. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. If you'll just do this, it'll fix this. And, and here's my general sense of what the church, at least the American expression of the church, has tended to say about all of these three realms of spiritual warfare. Not really being willing to dive into this because it, it can be messy. It gets really personal. And oh, by the way, if you teach on it, life gets really messy while you teach on it always, 100% of the time. Because the enemy hates for this stuff to be exposed, hates for people to be equipped to be free. And so the church has just offered a general message. Typically that is, go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers, and it'll all be okay. I mean, seriously, if you ask the average church-going Christian, what do you do to have victory with the things that you struggle with in your flesh or the things that the world has pulled you into that, that now have become a corrupting part of your life or the strongholds of the enemy in your life. What do you do to get free? I think if you boil it all down, most church-going Christians, that the best we could say in return is, well, you need to go to church, you need to read your Bible, and you need to say your prayers. Well, I'll be the first to say those are three good things we all ought to be doing, but you can do all three and live in absolute bondage. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that's where most people live. Most good, faithful Christians read their Bible, say their prayers, go to church, and live in bondage to the oppression of the enemy, to the influence of the world, and the strongholds that are there because of their fleshly nature that they've never really known how to deal with. Do you think I'm far off base? Are you with me? 
This is the, you can give feedback, so we're talking about this. I don't want you to just have to just listen to me. Do you think that that is indeed where most people live? Do you think we can get beyond that? Do you think God wants to, you to be beyond that? I think he does too, so let's press in. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 today, and I'm just going to go ahead and say this as a disclaimer on the front end. I don't want to frustrate you. I kind of hate ever having to do this when I preach, but I'm going to give you today the first half of a message, and you have to come back next week to get the second half. And the tough thing in that, most of what you need to hear is in the second half, because I'm going to set up the problem this week and only begin to supply What the Word says is the solution, and for most of the answer, you've got to come back next week. So, yes, I am baiting you a little bit, but it's mostly because I didn't figure you wanted to be here till dinner time. So I'm going to to give you what I can today as we uh, look into Romans 7, and then next week we'll get into Romans 8, where we get into the answer. Today and next week, we're going to be talking about warfare with the flesh. Now... As we get further into this series, we're going to get into the other things that I just alluded to. And yes, we're going to have to camp and spend some time on that third realm of spiritual warfare. How we deal with the devil and demons and that kind of oppression in our lives. And I know the, the truth of the matter is we, we're probably more curious about that than any of the other. I, I, uh, I had a friend this week who knew that I'm preaching on spiritual warfare for a couple of months. And he said, I definitely want to get uh, online and, and hear this series about that. And I... I had a feeling where he was going with that, and I said, now, just so you're clear, we're not going to get to the devil and demons until several weeks into this. And I could just see by looking at his face like, oh, well, I'll have to wait till later to check it out then because I'm not interested in that other stuff. And I'm like, you know, don't forget that the stuff we're going to talk about this week and next week is as basic as it gets. If you don't deal with what we're going to talk about today and next Sunday, you can deal with the devil all you want to. You're going to be eating up with your own problems. Because apart from the devil, I've got so many issues that he doesn't have to worry about trying to introduce into my life. They've been there for so long, I just make his job easier because of how much my nature just loves sin. And unless you start disrespecting me a whole lot, I don't love it any more than you do. (laughs) We're all eaten up with it. We're just all eaten up with, with loving to do things that are destructive. I mean, let, let me just ask you candidly. Do you ever just wonder about yourself? Amen. Do you ever just look at your own life and say, how did I get like this? I mean, I, I look around the room and, and I know a lot of you pretty well. There's a lot of Jesus followers in this room. And so now specifically addressing the, the people who... Aren't seekers, they're actively Jesus followers. Does it not baffle you at times, your own behavior, your own thought life? That you, There's a part of you going, I love Jesus. I love Sunday morning. I love when we're singing praise songs to Jesus. And I just feel like I just want to live every moment of the rest of my life to please and honor Jesus. And then 15 minutes later or two hours later, I want to do something very different from that. I bump into somebody that makes me mad. And I don't want to worship Jesus in this moment. I want to use some ugly language. I want to set them straight. I want to give full vent to my anger. I want to just bleh all over them. That doesn't have anything to do with praising Jesus. And then I drive by, you know, the pool or the beach. And there's some scantily clad women. And I don't want to praise Jesus. I want to take a second or third glance. Oh, my goodness. Surely not. Yes. And that, then I, you know, go to eat lunch. 
And instead of honoring Jesus with what I put in my body, I want to eat four times what I ought to eat. I want to clear the Ruby Tuesday salad bar. I want everything on the dessert menu. I mean, we could just go on and on. Somebody wants to start sharing a juicy story and it's gossip. And I want to hear all of it. But, oh, I love Jesus. I just want to honor him with every part of my life. What is going on in me? I want to live for Jesus. But, oh, my goodness, there's all kinds of other stuff that I want to do. What is wrong with us? It's exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. There's a war. There's a war going on inside of us. Now, the guy who's writing this, I just want to point this out. Next to Jesus... He has got to be the biggest super Christian in the whole New Testament era and maybe in the last 2,000 years. I mean, I'm convinced this guy had a big S tattooed on his chest. I mean, it, you read the New Testament. You realize Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books that are the New Testament. And when you read everything that he wrote and everything that he did, all that he went through, it's like, this guy's Jesus Jr. He is incredible. But in Romans 7... He gives us this real honest glimpse into his own life. And I'm so thankful that he did because I'm, I'd be so just overpowered by the image of who Paul is and trying to relate to him. But when I read these words, I go, wow, I can relate to this guy. So I want to read this from the Living Bible. Of all the different translations and paraphrases, this one is the easiest to understand for this passage to me. So um, we're going to begin in verse 15 of Romans 7. And I just want you to listen and see how much this sounds like your own feelings and and how you would describe your own experience. He begins by saying, I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what is right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to, what I hate. I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong and my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws that I'm breaking. But I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It's sin inside me that's stronger than I am that makes me do these evil things. I know I'm rotten through and through as far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. When I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to, it is plain where the trouble is. Sin still has me in its evil grasp. This is the super apostle talking. All these things that I've been trying to get rid of for years, I still run back to so many of them. And I feel like sin has me in its grasp. He continues on. It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love to do God's will so far as my new nature is concerned. But there is something else deep within me in my lower nature that is at war. Everybody say at war. It is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. In my mind, I want to be God's willing servant. But instead, I find myself still enslaved to sin. So you see how it is. My new life tells me to do right. But the old nature that is still inside me loves to sin. Oh, what a terrible predicament I'm in. Who will free me from my slavery to this deadly lower nature? 
thank God it has been done by Jesus Christ our Lord. He has set me free. Somebody say amen. Do you feel the frustration of Paul as he writes this? Does your heart not just immediately identify with this and want to go, yeah, I get it. I feel that. I want to gossip. I want to use whatever language I want to use. I want to overeat. I want to be able to let my anger loose. I want to chase whatever relationship I want to chase. I want to live however I want to live. But at the same time, I want to love God with all of my heart and life. These things are at war in me. Paul does a great job of describing it. And in that, he spells out for us, first of all, the cost, the emotional cost of living in this war and not knowing how to make progress in that. But then he begins to open the door that he fully opens in chapter 8 to discovering how we can have victory in this constant struggle that we feel inside of us. So first of all, we're going to take a few minutes to consider five costs that he spells out to just understand what's going on in us. Because I think the truth of the matter is one of the biggest things that the enemy succeeds in using against us is when we feel this conflict, he whispers in our ear, you can't really be a Christian and do the things that you do. Anybody who wants to do wrong as much as you do, as often as you do, can't really belong to God. No Christian would think like that. No follower of Jesus would truly desire those things. And we just need to expose that for what it is. It is a lie from the enemy. Followers of Jesus, including the super apostle, said, I still feel that. I still long for those things. I still have this war inside me. And at times I feel like a slave to that. So first of all, we want to understand what's going on. So in your outline, if you want to follow along there, five things that he's given us that are just helpers in understanding what's happening as we do this warfare with the flesh. The first one is, the first result is confusion. When we're unsuccessful at making the changes that we want to make on our own in our lives, it leaves us confused. You hear that when he says, I don't understand what I do. For I don't do what I would like to do, but instead I do what I hate. That's confusing, isn't it? Here is what I want to do. I want to eat right. I want to be healthy. I want to be positive and encouraging. I want to spend A significant amount of time in the Word and in prayer. I want to witness to people through the week. I want to do the right stuff. And here are the things that I want to carve out of my life. A, B, C, and D. And yet when I get down to it, I just find a lot of days that I'm not doing the good that I ought to do. And the very things I've made up my mind I'm never going to do again. I catch myself doing them again. And it's confusing, isn't it? How many of you ever just feel confused by your own behavior? Thank you. Glad I'm not in a room full of liars. I'm right there with you. Here's the thing I want you to begin to notice. In this one verse, Paul says, I, six times. One verse. I don't understand why I do what I do. In the span of 12 verses, he's going to say, I, me, my, and myself. 12 verses. 41 times. Now, there's a real major teaching point. I'm going to come back to this at the end. The contrast between Romans 7 and Romans 8. He's helping us to see something in a subtle way. In our own power, 
when I'm trying to do what I need to do and I'm going to do all this improvement to myself, it's total futility. You just hear the defeat again and again. I'm doing this. I'm trying that. But I'm failing. 41 times. I, me, my, and myself. And it's always failure, failure, failure. Confusion and frustration. We're going to see what the contrast is in just a few minutes. The second result is guilt and shame. He says, I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong. And my bad conscience proves that I agree with these, these moral laws that I'm breaking. God doesn't want us to live with guilt and shame, but we need to understand it is the natural result of trying to fulfill what God desires through willpower. Because I'm going to fail, and then I'll feel ashamed and guilty because of my failure and frustrated. He says, my, my bad conscience is the proof that I, I really know that what I'm doing is wrong. You know, we live in a time now where a lot of people are trying to turn truth into something that's just totally relative. That, that all truth is relative. There are no absolute truths. So I can sort of do what I want to do. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, you can't really say that it's right or wrong. And if that were really true, it would let us off the hook for a lot of things, wouldn't it? What I think, in my mind, it not hurt anybody else. So I can let my thoughts go anywhere that I want to. What I do in the privacy of my home, what I do in a consensual relationship, what I do on my computer, I'm not hurting anybody else. Sounds good, doesn't it? Just doesn't work. Paul said the truth of the matter is my guilty conscience reminds me of the truth and the validity of God's moral law. I know I'm not living right. I know it's not okay. For me to hold on to this bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and, and the, just the lust and the foulness, the, the things that we hold on to that other people can't see. And we can clean it up on Sunday. And how are you doing? I'm blessed. I'm blessed and highly favored. How are you doing, brother? Oh, you can wrap it in that all you want to. But he says, my guilty conscience, it reminds me of just how much I know that the way that I'm living that nobody else can see, it's messed up. And so it leaves us feeling guilty and ashamed. By the way, that word conscience, we, we use it a lot. Do you know what the word literally means? It's, it's origin. Etymology is kind of cool on that one. It's, it comes from a Latin, two words. Con, meaning with. Science, meaning knowledge. Pretty easy to understand that. Conscience means with knowledge. I do what I do with the knowledge of how wrong it is. And it just eats up my conscience because I, I carry with me the knowledge of what I've done and whether it's right or wrong. Third result is compulsions and addictions. That's where I, I start doing something so frequently or I've done it so long that it's become a habit that I cannot stop doing. Do you hear that in verse 17 when he says, I can't help myself because I am no longer doing it. It is sin inside me that is stronger than I am that makes me do these evil things. Now, you may read that and think, well, Paul's just playing the part of the victim going, oh, it's not me. It's sin inside me, so don't blame me. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I realize even though I am a follower of Jesus, there is something scary going on here because I get to a place... I cannot stop doing the very thing that I'm determined to stop doing. And I realize there is something at work inside of me. And at times, it is much stronger than me. 
it's become an absolute compulsion. We better come to terms with this. For every single person in this room, everybody who's watching or listening online, there are things inside you that are more powerful than your willpower and your ability to curb that, correct it, fix it. You you don't begin in Celebrate Recovery or in AA or any of the other programs. You don't even have any hope of making progress until you get to the place that you can acknowledge that there are things in my life that I can't manage. I can't fix them. I can't reel them in. I'm that broken. And that's what Paul is acknowledging. There is stuff in me I absolutely cannot fix. Even as a Christian, I can't muster enough willpower to fix them. And until you can acknowledge that, there are some things in my life that are broken. And I've tried hard to fix them. And in my power, I will never be able to fix this. Until you can acknowledge that, you have no hope of getting better. You can be set free from those things, but you never will be. Until you can acknowledge, this is more powerful than I am. Until you acknowledge your problem, you can't get help. All of us are addicted to doing some kind of wrong things. For some, it's gossip. For others, it's food. For some, it's alcohol or pills. For some, it's gambling. For some, it's relationships. Always believing that the next relationship is going to fill up what's lacking. And we'll just run from one unhealthy relationship to another to another. Thinking that the problem is the other person. And if we could just escape them. And we'll get to a point of such great frustration that we'll want a geographic solution to a personal problem. You ever feel that way? I just want to move away. I want to go to California or Hawaii or Alaska or Tahiti or someplace and just get away from all these fools that are driving me crazy. They're bringing me down. Can I just tell you the truth of that story? You get there and you start doing life and you get into relationships and you're going to find the same problems in Tahiti that you had in Baldwin County. Because every morning when you look in the mirror, you look at the biggest problem in your life. You. Just like I do. We all carry around in our own nature. When we're trying to live by our own willpower, we'll carry some kind of compulsions and addictions. We promise God we're going to do better, only to break those promises. fourth thing that it causes is self-condemnation. And some of us have PhDs in this, don't we? Just beating ourselves up. We stumble, we lose our temper, we spend what we swore we weren't going to spend and eat what we knew we weren't going to eat and get drunk even though we weren't going to drink anymore and, and then we beat ourselves up for it. Say, I'm so worthless. I am such a loser. How could God love me? How could I be a Christian? Paul, you hear that in his words when he says, I know that I am rotten through and through. Self-condemnation. And then fifth and finally, it's just frustration and despair. It's the natural result Always of trying to fix your own self. He says, no matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. It seems to be 
a fact of life, circle that phrase, a fact of life, that, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. That phrase, fact of life and inevitably, that, that just is the, the tale there, the, the giveaway of just despair. That's like him saying, I throw in the towel. This is just like it's a fact of life that, that I'll always do this. It's inevitable that I'm going to screw up or that I'm not going to do what I set out to do. It's, it's the person who says, why even bother with New Year's resolutions? Because we all know I'm going to be eaten like a pig by February. We all know that gym membership is going to be wasted money by Valentine's Day. Why even try? It's just futility. You hear the frustration and the despair in that. In the world, we, we're constantly given natural pictures of, of deeper spiritual realities of, of life. Gravity is one of those reminders. Gravity is a law of nature. It's a law that God's put in place. It always pulls us back down. I'll tell you one of my weird little things that has always been in my heart. is I've always wanted to fly. I've had a recurring dream throughout most of my life of being able... To literally fly. I don't mean like airplanes. I mean fly. It's, it's just the coolest dream. And I've had it so many times. I'll be in so many different places and discover I finally can do it. I, I, nobody else around me can, but I can fly. It's the most disappointing thing to wake up from that dream every time and go, Oh, rats! Gravity's got me again. The truth of the matter is... It's a law you can't violate as much as I want to fly. I could stand up here today and with all of my strength, all of my willpower, no no matter how much I have worked out or prepared for the moment, I can flap for all that I am worth. I have too fat and heavy of a body to ever get up in the air and stay there by doing this. Gravity pulls me back down. And the law of sin always pulls me back down. Human willpower is this. God, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better Christian. And the law of sin, human nature, pulls us back down. Willpower is just flapping your arms. And trying to live by willpower just leaves you frustrated and defeated. Now, I know this is a heavy topic. You can feel it in the room, can't you? It's just this heavy stuff. We had to start with the heaviness so we can get to the good news. I thought in bridging that, maybe we could lighten the moment by presenting what we're talking about in a little bit lighter fashion. And so I want to share with you a children's story today. It's one of the uh, series of stories written by Arnold LaBelle about frog and toad. Have any of you ever read any of the children's stories? All right, great. Y'all will will appreciate where I'm coming from. This one is a frog and toad together. And in this little children's story, you'll hear great theology that sounds a lot like what we discover in Romans 7 and 8. So let me just read for you frog and toad together. Toad made some good cookies. These cookies smell really good, said Toad. I ate one and they tasted even better, he said. So Toad ran over to Frog's house. Frog, frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I've made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies that I have ever eaten, said Frog. So Frog and Toad ate many, many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. 
but let us eat one last cookie. Then we will stop. So Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. But there were many cookies still left in the bowl. Frog said, Toad, let us eat one very last cookie, and then we will stop eating cookies. So Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad, as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Frog said, willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do. You mean like not eating these cookies, asked Toad? Right, said Frog. So Frog put the cookies in a box. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. This is true. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. Toad said, but we can cut the string and open the box. That is true, said Frog. So Frog got a ladder and he put the box up high on a shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But, Toad said, we can climb the ladder and take down the box from the shelf and cut the string and open the box. That is true, said Frog. So Frog climbed up the ladder and he took the box down from the shelf and he cut the string and he opened the box. Frog took the box outside, and he threw all the cookies out, and he shouted in a loud voice, Hey, birds, here are free cookies. Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks, and they flew away. Now we have no more cookies, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, said Toad. I'm going home now to bake a cake. Friends, that is a picture of life. We try, first of all, to tell ourselves we don't have a problem. And then when we realize we have a problem, we try and fix our problem and we discover that our solution isn't really a solution. And if we give it enough effort and enough willpower that we gain some level of control over our addiction to cookies, lo and behold, the next day we discover we got an addiction to cake. That's how life works. You may have never even realized what was going on. Maybe you had an addiction to one thing. Maybe it was an addiction to something like alcohol. And you got to the point by sheer willpower, you're beating this. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And you got white knuckle sober. Glory to God. I'm not drinking and I'm not drunk. But suddenly I'm angry all the time. Where did that come from? I was trying to conquer my addiction to cookies, and now I have an addiction to cake. I've got a problem with anger. I've got a problem with lust. I've got a problem with foul language. What's my deal? I was trying to overcome a problem with alcohol or some other addiction. And lo and behold, an addiction to cake has come along, right? As I defeated my cookie addiction. That's what it looks like when we try and conquer our flesh in our own strength. Ever been there? Ever felt that? Yep, we all have. So, the next thing that Paul tackles is just addressing, you know, why? Why do I continue to go back and do what I shouldn't do? Well, the answer is very simple. I still have two natures. And those two natures cause us to live, as he describes in verses 21 and following, when he says, I love to do God's will as far as my new nature is concerned, but there's something else deep within me, my lower nature, and it's at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin is still within me. So you see how it is. 
My new life tells me to do right, but my old nature that is still inside me loves to sin. Everybody say it, loves to sin. Oh, what a terrible predicament that I'm in. We feel that all the time. One nature in us, wanting to please God. One nature that loves to sin. It doesn't make you not a Christian. It just means that you actually have entered into the the full conflict now that Christ is in you. I love to please God and I love to sin. And so I've got this war. And Paul says to sum it up, what a terrible predicament that I'm in. That phrase, terrible predicament in the Greek, it means exhaustion from hard work. It says, what's the net result of this war between my spiritual nature and my fleshly nature? He, he says, the net result is, I'm just worn slap out. I am totally exhausted. I am sick of fighting this battle. Are you sick of it? A couple of you are. I am. Makes me long for heaven. I, I just get so sick of having to deal with my own junk. But we can move beyond this terrible predicament. And in Romans 8, he spells out in detail God's plan for how we can walk in victory in this warfare that's going on inside of us. But we're not going to wait until next week to get into the first keys to walking in victory. So I want to share with you just three parts to God's battle plan for our victory. And then we'll pick it up next week, diving into Romans 8. But the first of these three is this. If you're going to have victory... In this fleshly inner struggle, the first thing that has to happen is we must deepen our understanding of Christ and the cross. Now, I realize that may sound very vague and very general, but I want to tell you, you can't get there apart from this. Because your victory, my victory, is always tied back to Jesus and back to the cross. And this is counterintuitive. We tend to think Jesus and the cross is all 2,000 years old. That thing is finished. What I've got to do now is I've got to work on fixing this thing in my life. And I want to tell you the most broken parts of your life you cannot fix. They will only begin to be changed as you learn to enter into a deeper relationship with Christ and to more fully enter into the reality of what happened on the cross and the fact that as a follower of Christ, you've been placed in Christ and you now have been crucified with him so that when Christ died, that part of you died. And in every time that you now struggle with this same thing that you want to do, you don't beat it by willpower. It's overcome by the power of Christ Through your union with Christ. Because you are now in Christ. And you discover in that a power stronger than the lure of sin. Part of what's hard to swallow for us is that simply trusting Christ and getting saved doesn't fix you. Let me say that again. Do you realize that getting saved... And getting Jesus in your life doesn't fix you. It gets all of your sins forgiven, past, present, and future. It gets you in the family of God. Can we all agree those are huge? Those are gigantic. We're in the kingdom. We're going to heaven. We belong to God. Sins are forgiven. Gigantic. But you are not fixed. You are forgiven. You are broken, but forgiven. Praise God for forgiveness. That's a huge relief. Tell you what, it would be a bigger relief 
to be forgiven and put back together. Because it's frustrating to be forgiven and to keep screwing up and need more and more forgiveness. Now, I'm not preaching perfection. We're not going to fully get there until we get to heaven. But sanctification, that's a big Christian word. We don't throw around a whole lot, but that just means becoming more and more like Jesus. That better be a reality in our lives, and you can't get there through human efforts. It is through your union with Jesus and the victory of the cross being brought to bear in your life that we begin to walk in victory over these sins of the flesh. Jesus is not content to just be resident in your life. When you get saved, Jesus is resident in your life. His spirit comes to live in you. He lives in everyone who's a follower of Jesus here. He's never content just to be resident. He wants to be president. He wants to be CEO. He wants to be Lord. And as he progressively becomes more and more of that in our lives, more of his power is brought to bear. His victory is brought to bear so that we can begin to walk in victory. Paul said in verse 24 and 25, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. When he asked the question, who will free me from this body of sin and death? It would have called to mind for his readers something that it absolutely does not call to mind for us. Because this, what I'm going to share with you is so barbaric. We wouldn't do this today. But in Paul's time, living under the, the Roman Empire, sometimes their punishments were really bizarre, really severe. And one of the punishments that a judge could hand down for somebody who's guilty of murder that is so unconventional is as the punishment for the murderer, they would take the body of the person that they had killed and they would put it on them, arm to arm, back, you know, their front to your back, legs to legs, and they would chain you. Every part of your body to the dead person. And using a blacksmith, they would lock you down so that everywhere you went, you carried that body with you. Literally, your worst sin was on your back. It was chained to you. And you carried it that way until it completely rotted off of you. So everywhere you went, the sight... And the stench of your worst failure went with you. Starting to feel a little familiar? Because for many of us, we feel like we live with the spiritual equivalent of that. I know Jesus says that I'm forgiven. And yet I feel like everywhere I go, I carry the foulness, the stench, the failure, the defeat of knowing that I've done this and that I still struggle with that, that I'm still in this relationship, that I still can't control my own words, my own habits, my own temper. I'm just carrying around this body of sin and death. And Paul asked the question, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And he says, praise God. He's done it in the person of Jesus. He is the only one who can loose the chains that hold that, that death and that stench up against you. You can't ever undo the chains. Only Jesus can do that. Now we're going to get more into what that means next week. But here's the fundamental thing that I need for us to get today. If you don't hear anything else that I've said today, please hear the next 60 seconds. When you and I foul up... 
And we all do. We all do way too frequently. But I'm talking about particularly when we foul up in the areas that we have focused so much effort and energy on fixing. And now we've blown it again. Instinctively we feel like God is so disappointed with me. I can't be close to God right now. I know right now God must be turning away from me. I'm so far from God because of my failure. I've got to do better. I've got to try harder, right? Doesn't that essentially sum up how you feel in those moments? I'm so bad, I've got to be better so I can be closer to God. And that is 180 degrees opposite of what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us always in our moments of failure to realize this isn't a call to try harder. This failure is an opportunity to go, Jesus, I need you that much more. I'm running to you. I need your grace. I need the reality of the cross. I know there's no point in me trying because my flesh is so fouled up. You see, if you could fix you, if you could fix the most broken thing in you, Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. God would just have said, try harder, be better, and this is what it looks like. You can't. Here's what God says about our broken condition. He says your condition's terminal. Even God doesn't have a pill that'll cure how fouled up and sick we are. He said the only way I can fix that is to kill it and start over. And that's his solution. We think the cross just killed Jesus. The cross wasn't designed just to kill Jesus. The cross was designed to kill the wicked human nature that I carry. And here's the good news. When you're placed in Jesus, it means that his history is your history. His story is now your story. It's why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the victory. It doesn't come because I'm going to try harder, God, I promise. I'll really do better this time. No, you won't. Not in your own energy, but when you realize every time you screw up, you don't go, oh, I can't be close to God now because I'm such a screw up. You go, oh, Jesus, I am running to you. I just blew it today, and it reminds me of how much I need you. I need the cross, and I declare the victory of the cross. I've been crucified with Christ. That old person that I was is not who I'm going to continue to be. I have died with him, and now Christ lives in me. Jesus, I need you more today than I've ever needed you. And in that moment, the power of God is poured out for you to walk in grace victory and power that's what we're talking about you didn't get there by effort and you let even your failures draw you to run to the cross not to shrink back now paul addresses in in romans 6 he's like so should we just let sin increase so we'll just have that much more reason to run to jesus he said absolutely not that is not the foolishness we're teaching but when we blow it We let that drive us back to Jesus. He spells that in Romans 6. Don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Instead, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. And in Romans 8, just a little hint of where we're going next week. He says, for the new spiritual principle of life in Jesus Christ lifts me out of the old vicious cycle of sin. Our victory is going to come through our union with Christ. The second truth, second part of God's plan for our victory is, I must detect and disarm the lie that I'm believing if I'm going to break 
a cycle of sin being drawn back to the same things. Satan is, Jesus said, Satan is the father of all lies. He is a liar and the father of all lies. He's been lying to you all of your life. And along the way, we learn to lie to ourselves. You realize that, don't you? The biggest liar you know is yourself. The biggest liar I know is me. We lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves all kinds of, of lies. And the biggest one is, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with that. Lie. John said in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, we tend to take that as to mean, you know, we're saying, oh, I'm sinless. But the reality of how we do that typically is we just say, well, that, that wasn't really wrong what I did, or I don't really have a problem with what I did. I don't really have a problem with unforgiveness. That person just did me wrong, and I'm not going to forget it. Well, we're lying to ourselves. That's called unforgiveness. You know, I'm holding on to that. I'm going to try and mentally punish you with that. I don't have a problem with drinking. I just like to drink every day. But I don't have a problem with it. I can stop any time I want to do. In fact, I've stopped a hundred times. Okay, guess what? That's called lying to yourself. John said, you just deceive yourself and the truth, truth is not in you. Well, if we're going to get to a better place, we're going to have to begin to recognize the lies that we've either believed from the enemy or we've told ourselves and believed. So, let me ask you this question. What have you pretended in your life is not a problem? And you've let yourself hold on to the lie that it's not a problem, but really is a problem. Two, two statements that we'll make in, in relation to this truth. And this is important, because if we're going to win the battle, we've got to stop lying to ourselves. So the first one is this. Behind every self-defeating act is a lie that I have believed. I'll share just a, a real personal one this morning that I was sharing with a couple of our leaders this morning. Sometimes living in, in intimate fellowship with other Christians, it's a wonderful experience, and sometimes it's a painful experience. Do you know the reality of that? I mean, like, it's a little bit scary being around spirit-filled people that God speaks to, because sometimes he speaks to them about me, and sometimes I want to run away from that. And I had that experience this week. Many of you know Scott Davis, who's the pastor of, of Grace Church, one of our sister churches, is a close friend of mine, and God's used him in my life for years. It, and uh, probably a couple of years ago, on one of our retreat days that he and Ovi and I were together, um, the Lord had said something to him, and he had said the matching piece to me and it just came out in in our retreat day as we were sharing together and i knew that god had called scott to a particular assignment in our community and a spiritual role of of um being a watchman in terms of just kind of this old testament scriptural term of being a watchman on the wall that he had a a particular role a particular place of authority that god had given him to engage in spiritual warfare on behalf of all the residents of our city. And he took that very seriously, and I knew he had done it for years, and really prayed a covering uh, and engaged the enemy for our, our whole community, and done that for years. And two years ago, the Lord spoke a clear word to him that he had a different assignment for him that was not to be the watchman on the wall for our city anymore, but that it was okay because he had called somebody else to do that. And he specifically told him, I've called Mark 
to take your place in that role and given him that position of authority in, in the city. So he, in our meeting, he was spelling all that out to me, and, which was a, a neat confirmation because the, the Lord had spoken the same thing to me out of the clear blue, that he was calling me into that role. It was just, it was kind of an interesting, cool confirmation that Scott said the Lord's released me from that and said, you're supposed to take it on. I was like, well, okay, I didn't dream that up that the Lord told me that I'm supposed to step into this role for our, our community and to pray for specific regions, specific things, engaging in spiritual warfare. So I've done that for a couple of years. Well, Wednesday, this past Wednesday, I was meeting with Scott and Ovi late that afternoon. And out of the clear blue, we weren't talking about anything related to this. We hadn't talked about any of this in a couple of years. And Scott looked me in the eye and said, I need to ask you something. Are you being faithful to the thing that God called you to do in spiritual warfare as a watchman on the wall for our city? And I hated having to answer that question. And I said, no, in the last three months, I have not. I did for like two years, but in the last three months, I have not been faithful to it in the least. And he said, the Lord told me to ask you that question and to tell you to get back on the wall and do what you're called to do and what you're empowered to do. And to that, I just said, yes, sir, message received. I will get back at it. And I went home immediately to my small group, went straight from there back to Wednesday night to our small group meeting. So I go to our small group. And in the course of our sharing together that night, I shared that experience. I'm just, I'm telling you, I'm still, my backside's still singing because I knew that was a little trip to the woodshed of the Lord going, you are not doing what I called you to do. Get back at it. And so I'm sharing that with our small group. And Big John is in our group and um, John Davidson. And so as I share that, thinking, okay, end of story. In front of the whole group, John just looks at me and goes, so why would you do that? I'm thinking, thanks, John. And I, I confess, I guess I was probably being a little bit of a smart aleck, and I said, I guess because I'm a slacker. And he, he wasn't willing to take that. And he goes, no, why did you do that? Why did you quit? And so I had to stop. My small group's in the room. They're all looking at me like, yeah, we remember that moment. That was a blessing. So I'm thinking about it. And it's like the Holy Spirit just whispered in that moment. It's because you believed a lie. You believed the lie that your prayers weren't making any difference, so you quit. You believed nothing was different in this community as a result of you being obedient to what I called you to do. You believed that lie, and so you stopped doing what I called you to do. And so that's what I said to my small group, because the Holy Spirit said it in that moment. I was believing a lie. But you know what? Now that it's exposed, I can get back on the wall and do what I'm called to do. Now I share that as a personal story to go, yes, I struggle with... Failure on both ends as much as anybody, but part of this equation is recognizing the lies so that we can replace that with the truth and get back to doing what the truth does for us. The, the second thing we'll say is, just in line with that, to stop defeating myself, I must stop deceiving myself. I must stop denying and rationalizing why I'm doing or why I've quit doing what I've quit doing. So my next question to you is, what self-destructive behavior in your own life are you putting up with? Or are you rationalizing? What, what truth do you need to admit about that? Now, you know, Jesus said, one of our favorite things to quote from the lips of Jesus is John 8.32, where Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's always funny to me how we love to quote that and we will not quote the line before it. Where Jesus says, if you follow my teachings... Then you're really my disciples, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, it's much easier to just go, the truth will make you free. Just know the truth. Just know something, and then you'll be free. No, Jesus said, you apply what I have said. You do what I said. Then you'll know truth, and truth will make you free. 
the great reminder in that is, truth alone doesn't make you free. Truth alone will make you mad. It will. I mean, the whole Wednesday experience I shared with you, if all I had was the truth of that, it would have made me mad. Who are you? Who are you, Scott Davis? Who are you, John Davis? And to be questioning me. Truth will just make you mad if you don't have a heart that's open to go, you know what, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm willing to apply truth, and then it'll make you free. Suddenly you feel empowered to go, I've been a fool. I believed a lie. God is doing something through my life. God is doing something through my prayers. I don't have to see the tangible results to know. It's happening. God says it's happening. So it's liberating. It's freeing. I'm happy to get back to it. But truth won't make you free unless you act on truth. So to stop defeating myself, I've got to stop deceiving myself. And then the third and final thing we'll mention is this. I must declare my struggle to another. If you want to be free from the things that have plagued you the longest. I'm not talking about you confess every sin you've got to somebody else. But if you want to be free from what's had real staying power in your life, you've got to confess your struggle to another person. Admit to them, I cannot get a handle on this. I can't control what comes out of my mouth or I can't control what goes into my mouth. I can't control my anger. I can't control my thoughts. I can't control my eyes. I can't control the relationships that I'm running to. I can't get free of unforgiveness or fear of anxiety. and get Whatever it is, admit it to somebody else. The old adage that we say again and again around here, revealing the feeling is the beginning of healing. It's so true. We confess our sins to God for forgiveness, but we confess our sins to one another for healing. There is a difference. There is a big difference. There are some things that we have been forgiven of, but we have never been healed from. And so we just linger in those things. James 5.16. It is one of the most important passages in the New Testament. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that God can heal you. Everybody say, so God can heal you. What do you do to get that? Confess to who? Confess it to one another. When a believing person prays, great things happen. We've got to be willing to share with somebody else. And the power of God is unleashed in that time of confession and prayer. One final verse I'll share and we're done. Galatians 5.16, Paul says this. So let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. And then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. I said at the beginning, when we got back to the end, I'd I'd point out the contrast between Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7, 41 times, I, me, my, and myself. He's giving us this little little subtle lesson. If I'm going to solve my problems, it's going to lead to all the defeat that you see in Romans 7. But when you get to Romans 8... Guess what replaces all of those eyes? Nineteen times he talks about the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. The eyes go away. Romans 8 is all about the victory that we have. Romans 7 is all about, I'm doing this, I'm going to do better, I want to do better, but I fail, I, I, I. And in the chapter 8, I can't do any of this. But here's what the Holy Spirit does. As I begin to yield my life to the control of the Holy Spirit, I suddenly have the power to walk in victory. I want you to picture this as we close. When we leave here today, I want you to imagine that you go down to the bay 
and you see the seagulls flying, and you see a seagull in mid-flight who has a major seagull stroke. He has a brain aneurysm and just drops dead out of the sky, and he drops to the ground. Dead seagull on the beach. And you love birds, and you love to see him soaring in the air. And so you go over and you say, poor little seagull, look at you. His wings are still intact. His body's intact. He's still got all of his feathers. He is still fully a seagull. And you just say, this is so sad. This doesn't make sense. Here's a seagull who's made to fly, and he's just lying here on the beach. And so, Mr. Seagull, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to spread your wings, and I'm going to lift you up, and I'm just going to send you back to the sky where you were meant to be. And so, go fly away, seagull, and you throw him in this in the air. You know what's going to happen in the next quarter of a second dead seagull back on the beach why why is that seagull back on the beach he's still got all of his parts he is still a seagull he's still in the shape that that a seagull needs to be able to fly but he can't fly why because one thing is missing it is the thing that only god can supply and it is the gift of life Life is the the God-given power to do something that no human, no other being can create. In spite of what the Frankenstein novel ever said, no human has ever been able to create the life that is the power that can take a body that on its own can't do anything. It can't fly. It can't accomplish anything. Only God can give life. And in your experience, only God can give you spiritual life, the power to soar, the power to defy spiritual gravity, the law of sin and death in your life. Only God's Spirit can breathe life into you so that those things that have controlled you, those things that you've lied to yourself and said, it's not a problem or it's a problem I can handle, it's something I can manage, and you can't. You're as dead as that seagull on the beach. You can't make it happen. But when God speaks life into you, He sends His Spirit into you, and suddenly you have the power to defy gravity. You can soar to places you could have never gotten through your own effort. But it's only going to be by His Spirit, through your union with Christ. So where are you struggling? Really struggling? What is it that has just kept you so tied to the ground? And do you want to be free? Do you want to get past that? It's just inevitable. I'm just bound to this. Do you believe... That Christ truly wants you to live at a different place, setting you free so that you're not bound by what you have been before. Would you join me as we go to him together in prayer? I have no desire to play games or manipulate anybody at this point. I just want to ask you a straightforward question. I'm I'm going to ask you, please, I don't want anybody looking around. This is not some kind of spiritual show or game where... We're checking up on each other. This is about you and your life and your relationship with God. And so I'm just going to ask you plainly, is there something in your life that has plagued you, that has held you bound, and and you just know that it's time that you want to be free from that, that you want God to give you the power to live a life that is no longer just completely bound by this sin. You want to be free. Would you just raise your hand? I'm going to just pray with you and for you around the room. Watching and listening online, is there something that you just want to be free from? I want to just 
just pray for you and over you right now, but I want to invite you to just turn to the Lord and ask Him to breathe life and power into you. Father, you see hands raised and you know the lives that are represented by those hands. I pray that first of all right now, God, you would give us eyes to see clearly our own helplessness. Help us to see the truth of our situation. And in that, if there are lies that need to be exposed, would you just show us the lies that we have believed that have kept us living where we've lived. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak with deep conviction where there's anger and unforgiveness that needs to be rooted out. Show us that. Where there are just fundamental problems with addictions. Show us that relationship problems that we can't fix show us that and we ask you now Holy Spirit by your power to bring freedom empower us to live differently God where there has been just a blanket of guilt and shame and frustration as a result of of these lingering issues we ask you to free us from that today we choose today to believe in the power of the cross and the forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of Jesus. And we pray that that would be applied in a fresh way here today. Would you just from your own heart and just in your own way, would you just ask God to forgive you? Be specific. Wherever you've struggled, just confess, God, I don't make excuses for this. You know how I've blown it. You know how I've struggled. I can't fix this. Would you forgive me and would you just begin day by day to set me free, to make me new? Would you just agree with God's word and say, Lord, I I don't put any confidence in my ability to be better. But I run to you, Jesus, and to your cross. And I'm going to keep running to you, trusting you to change me. Lord, we thank you that your provision is complete. We look to you, we trust you, and we ask you today to do a fresh work of grace in us. And we receive that by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.